Hello and welcome to Renegade Mama. I am your host, Natalie Rees. Today on the show, I speak with Billy Harrigan, who has worked in the birth world for over 35 years. This interview is the interview that has it all. Having seven children of her own, she has experienced a lot firsthand herself, as well with the family she has worked with. We chat everything from hospital birth to home birth, doulering to being a birth companion, breastfeeding, homeschooling, and I learn about trauma-informed care. I love speaking to our elders who have been there and done it. So much wisdom in their words. Thank you, Billy, and enjoy the listen. Welcome, Billy, to the Renegade Mama. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. So, Billy, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, um, what you do, um, and maybe how many people are in your family and things like that. Um, currently, I'm a grandmother. I have seven children, all adults now. I have uh, four grandbabies and another one on the way. Um, I started my journey with a, as many of us did, with a uh, all the bells and whistles hospital birth that left me with some pretty wicked PTSD. And uh, it was a journey out of that kind of um, what we would probably call today just patriarchy and misogyny. This mm -hmm. real um, distaste for women and their bodily functions. And it was a journey through a whole lot of um, changes in our lives that turned into 20 years of homeschooling wow. and uh, partnering with other families as they welcomed their babies. We had this uh, really wonderful community where we just taught each other how to eat, how to be pregnant, how to parent, how to breastfeed, how to have babies. That's so and, nice. Uh, we advocated at the time for the decriminalization of midwifery. Uh, Canada was the only country in the world where it was entirely illegal to practice midwifery. So wow. we, we advocated for that. And uh, so I had my seven and I was homeschooling and I stopped working with families to take a little break. Mm -hmm. And um, midwifery had been decriminalized and regulated and we thought we won. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> And uh, a friend at church said, hey, would you be my doula? And I thought, well, I don't know what that is, but yeah, let's have a baby. <laughs> so uh, my, my experience then was we would get some, you know, the friends would come over, the grandparents, if they were welcome, there'd be a nursing baby, there'd be some champagne, we'd be cooking, the kids <laughs> would be playing, and the baby would come out and it would be a great time. Well, uh, things had changed in the very few years that I was not part of the scene. And um, she called her regulated midwife and it unfolded very differently and ended up in the hospital with epidural, episiotomy, mm. just everything. And uh, I went home and threw up. Yeah, wow. So um, that was uh, a real turning point for me. And I thought, well, hey, women want doulas. So let's do that. I will, I will uh, transition from my 20 years of supporting families in this very holistic way to supporting them as a doula because surely this is what hospitals want mm. i was sadly mistaken <laughs> that was not what they wanted at the time that was also not what uh, home birth midwifery uh, wanted at the time either yeah. so um i did uh there, there was a fantastic um campaign going on by dona uh doulas of north america at the time mm -hmm. to educate uh, potential clients to say ask if your doula is certified. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
that was brilliant of them. So I had so many people saying to me, are you certified? And I thought, no, I've got 25 years experience. <laughs> you're not, ex you're not certified. Thought, yeah. oh, apparently this is important now. So I wasn't really sure anybody could teach me anything new. Um, yeah. And I found Childbirth International yeah. and I thought, Ooh, you folks are going to teach me something new. And uh, I loved it, loved the studies and eventually became a, a trainer for them and mm -hmm. then transitioned to um, being the director of education. Oh, wow. So had a magnificent uh, time there in my, my uh, years working with Childbirth International. And uh, so that during that time, as I was a doula for about a half an hour, um, <laughs> <laughs> I left it pretty quickly. It was not aligned with me and my experience. I'm, I think doulas are um, incredibly important part of the birthing culture. And I think they're an incredibly um, integral member of the team or should mm -hmm. be. Um, but my own skills were different. So yeah. um, I went back to what it is I do, which is helping families have babies in a very holistic, uh, comprehensive way. And, uh, but there was so much birth trauma um, during that time that uh, a colleague and I at the time, we started Birth Trauma Ontario. And mm -hmm. that's um, originally started as the place where women could gather to not feel alone in their mm -hmm. birth trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, my colleague moved on and I'm uh, more of an academic. So it became um, an advocacy and training organization in the skills of trauma-informed care. And uh, during my time at Childbirth International, I wrote the world's first uh, certification accredited course for becoming a trauma-informed perinatal professional. Mm. So that um, was a, just a wonderful experience and an incredible learning journey. But it was a tough one. It meant yeah. um, reading. I did read. It took me a few years, and I went through thousands and thousands of documents mm. um, and talked to hundreds of uh, women, which I have in the course of my work at Birth Trauma Ontario. And uh, it detailed a lot of um, abuse and the words that often come up in the literature by the women themselves is torture, rape, mm. Mm. Um, criminal. So some really hard stuff. Yeah. So it was a it was a good experience, a tough one. But now I'm <laughs> I teach trauma informed care to um, perinatal professionals. Wow, so much to talk about. I don't even know where to start, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't we start right back at the start um, with your own birth when you were born to your mother? Do you know much about that? Yeah, my um, my mother had. Uh, just straightforward for the time. Mm -hmm. um, she went to the hospital. She labored unmedicated. When the time came, they knocked her unconscious. Whoa. And she woke up later uh, to be told what she had. Whoa. And, uh, that's how it was done. How and did they knock her unconscious? What were they using? Um, an inhalant. Um, not sure what yeah. the actual yeah. masking and inhalant was. But what year is up. this? This was in the 1950s. 1950s yeah right okay yeah. wow so when I was being born she was offered a spinal um it was a brand new way of yeah. it never occurred to them that women would just have the baby yeah. ever 
Yeah. <laughs> that, that was just not, not on the table. It was unheard of. So she was offered a spinal with me and she thought, okay, it's my last. Yeah, let's do this spinal. Uh, it left her with a crippling spinal headache and mm. she was um, really out of it with pain. So when I was removed from her, um, they said, you want to meet your baby? And she said, no. So I was taken out and shown to my father and they came back in with me and they said to her, well, at least daddy likes her. <laughs> and, uh, off to the uh, nursery I went. And uh, babies then were brought only every four hours and the mothers were to dab their nipples and rubbing alcohol before <laughs> the baby flashed. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, my mother was a great believer in rubbing alcohol. Wow, and uh, so for different. her, breastfeeding was to be, it came easily for her, but um, she felt that it interfered with her sexuality. So mm. she weaned early. So when I became pregnant, I, I married early, um, as we did back then. Yeah, how um, old were you? I was, uh, had just had my 23rd birthday. Okay, you weren't that young. Uh, no, I guess not. It just seems to be but compared to today. Yeah, compared to today, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, got pregnant on my honeymoon. And yeah. um, my mother's response was horror. She was, oh, what's to become of me? She was horrified. Um, Why? I didn't know at the time. I was very, very wrapped up in her, um, gosh, her emotional baggage. I didn't know until many, many years later, she was actually an extreme narcissist. Right. Extreme. Um, so, uh, and my father died when I was a child. He was an alcoholic and he died of medical stupidity. So, right. um, so when I was pregnant, it was what's to become of me was a reflection of, you know, as she aged, my body became her proxy. Mm. And so my breasts were her proxy because they were still young and nubile. <laughs> my, right. So my becoming pregnant was, um, at the time, this was a very warped combination of um, hide your pregnancy because then people would know you had sex. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that you don't want to draw attention to your baby bump because it showed that you were naughty <laughs> right. and there was a sense that uh i are this even outright talk from my mother and uh, the culture of the time that you know you couldn't hold it together like you were so careless you got pregnant on your honeymoon mm. yeah this very um dirty like god woman you know keep it together <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, significant tones of shaming for right. being pregnant. Yes. And then um, my father died of medical stupidity when I was a child. So I knew that people go into the hospital and they die. And yeah. when my mother was um, a child, um, her mother had all of her children in a two room house on the prairies with no running water, including her first babies were twins. Wow. Um, no big deal, but came to With a midwife or not? Uh, no, the family doctor came. Okay. If he was available. Yeah. If not, then the neighbors came over. So, <laughs> yeah. There, well, there was no midwifery really in yes. Ontario. Okay. So of course. The, na the neighbors and the family doctor, if he wasn't busy. Mm -hmm. um, but for the last baby, um, it was, it was um, considered the thing to do to go to the hospital. Yes. So it was perhaps her 11th or something. And she died after. Okay. So some sisters say she died of a blood clot and some say breast cancer. Nobody really knows. 
Okay. But what my mother knew is you go to the hospital and you can die mm. having a baby. So mm. um, she filled me with stories of you die in childbirth. Yes. <laughs> so you, you careless girl, you know, opening your legs and getting pregnant and now you might die. <laughs> so, wow. She obviously uh, she, had some big stuff that she had never dealt she with. She really did. She really yeah. did. There was a lot of unresolved stuff that, uh, but as a, uh, somebody with narcissistic personality, there's no insight. So um, the, she told me to not bond with the baby because my husband would leave me. She oh. said men usually leave in the first year because they find out it's not as much fun as dating. So wow. you not bond to the baby because he would leave you. And wow. since my father died when I was a child, you know, fathers and husbands leaving was, was a reality for me. Yeah. And so she said to go to the hospital where she had her babies because then I'd live and I wanted to live. But didn't and you say just, the baby, the story was that they died in the hospital? Yeah. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Isn't it though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all we knew. So, yeah. um, but if I went to the right hospital, then I'd yes. live. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And if I got the right obstetrician, then I would live. And it yeah. had to be the a female obstetrician because, you know, you don't want men touching you. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So it was just a lot of mix of, um, I'm going to die. And if I don't die, then my husband's going to leave me. And it's all because of this child that I actually was quite happy to have. And actually, so was my husband. <laughs> a delight. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with all of that going on, um, we did take uh, childbirth education classes. Mm -hmm. And that was run by a public health nurse. And it was, um, I'm not sure, six weeks of grooming. Yes. It was just grooming to be compliant. This is what they're going to do to you. They are going to shave your pubic hair. Okay, so no surprises. They are going to do this. So no surprises. Wow. And this is when you're going to want your epidural. So no surprises. And it was just, uh, I think back now, and I think we actually paid you to do that. <laughs> what was the <laughs> idea of shaving the pubic hair? I don't get that. Um, it was, oh, maybe they didn't do it in Australia. It was a pretty common routine. Oh, I'm sure they did back in the day. Oh, but yeah, uh, I'm just interested. Women's vulvas were filthy. Yeah, so right. They cleaned them and shaved them to, so that the baby could come out in a more sterile environment. So <laughs> I mean, I have he even heard that today. Um, I, I remember a friend once saying, oh, I've got to go get my Brazilian because I don't want the doctor to see any kind of hair and be grossed out. And I thought just how bizarre. Yeah. How bizarre. I mean, yeah, just what is natural is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And this is the way that, yeah, people have been conditioned to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. There was no way my body was going to go into labor. And uh, yeah. so when the OB said I was 42 weeks and I know I was 44, I went into the hospital for the induction. Wow. That uh, was one tight cervix. It wasn't <laughs> ready. Uh, no. Uh, balloon catheter the night before and water breaking. And um, I did start to labor. Uh, it wasn't very difficult at all, but uh, it wasn't on the timeline they wanted. Yeah. And um just nurse after nurse telling me, asking me if I wanted my epidural now, don't be a hero and oh, giggling yeah. at me. And so finally just to shut them up, I agreed to an epidural because I wanted mm. them to just go away. Although I didn't need it. Um, mm, this is a common story. I think. I think so. Yeah. Yep. Um, so after the, uh, 
And when I went in there, uh, was at whatever stage of labor and threw up. And I was scolded. Oh, did the little princess bring her own pillow? Oh. That's why we have them, so you don't throw up on them. <laughs> oh. Everything was so denigrating and insulting. And after the uh, epidural was in, um, the uh, anesthetist, was, she walked across the room to greet some med student who had walked in, some young fella. And I remember her words saying, oh, these women, they go to these prenatal classes and think all they have to do is show up and breathe. But as soon as they get here, they start screaming for me and line up for me. Oh, my God. Thinking, you bitch, I didn't line up for you. I gave <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, so um, eventually it was uh, turned into a, a mid forceps. And I think the purpose of that was just to show a room full of people how it was done. I don't think it was really necessary. Mm -hmm. And so they cut you as well? Oh my gosh, cut in ways, unbelievable cutting. Mm. And when they pulled her out, um, she was covered in meconium and the pediatrician whisked her off to the NICU and the OB followed. And I was stitched up by the resident and the brand new student. And mm. I was nice and tight like a six-year-old. Wow. So I'm not sure they've ever stitched a perineum or a vagina before. So mm. That was some instant birth control there. Mm. Um, so uh, four hours later, I was in my room with my husband and the pediatrician came in and he said, okay, so your baby's alive for now. I don't think she will be in the morning, but if she is, she'll be severely retarded. Um, <sighs> so I'll let you know in the morning. Wow. <laughs> Um, they used the word retarded back then. Um, and I said, can I go see her? And he said, no, of course not. And my husband said, can I go see her? And he said, oh yeah, sure. Come on. Wow. So, uh, he went and he met our baby and he came back and said she was wonderful. And he went home and slept like a doll. <laughs> and pretty soon I was lying in a puddle of my own urine because, you know, everything was cut and frozen and diced. So, um, in the morning, um, the social worker came in to tell me about the six-year follow-up for my severely uh, damaged baby. And I asked, is she alive? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, nobody's told me. Did she live through the night? And so she ran out of the room and came back 20 minutes later and said, yeah, she's alive. I said, okay, when can I go see her? And she said, that's not my job. Wow. And she left. <laughs> so... I think I might have seen her that afternoon. I'm not sure when I got the go ahead to get wheeled down mm -hmm. there. So uh, I think the, um, the OB might have felt some guilt. Um, the baby stayed. My daughter stayed for eight days. And um, the OB had some fair degree of clout in the hospital. And she kept me there eight days to mm -hmm. be in, at least in the same building with her. Mm -hmm. And at eight days, they handed me a child that they told me was mine and told me to go home and raise her. Wow. And how did you feel then? Uh, dead. Mm. Dead. And, uh, but I had a child to take care of that they told me was mine. And she looked like my husband, so I believe them more or less. Mm. So uh, that was, uh, you know, that was our, our learning journey into parenthood. Um, there was no concept at the time that uh, anybody but soldiers could have PTSD. And it would have been, uh, oh gosh, decades before there was any recognition that PTSD could be the result of the childbirth experience. Uh, I was just told to be grateful. And thank goodness you were in the hospital. Mm. Can you imagine if you weren't? Mm. Um, that 
three months, I started going to the uh, Leche League meetings. Oh, yeah, they're great. Oh, amazing. Uh, to try and figure out, you know, a little more about this relationship with this upset child mm. that I had. And um, that was transformative in meeting women that uh, they liked having babies. They thought birth was great. I thought, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> how can birth be great? They um, had babies at home. Um, and I'm thinking, how do you do that unmedicated? Mm. And they smiled. And uh, that became the turnaround for me of discovering this whole new way of being a parent of being a woman. Mm. Separating from that toxic misogyny that my mother presented to me where everything was about making sure my husband's sexuality was top priority mm. because otherwise he'd leave me, mm. which wasn't him. No, no. <laughs> no, he, he was a lovely human being. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating, isn't it? And mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And so you got to the La Leche League that kind of changed your perspective. How did you go into the next birth? Uh, when I got pregnant with the next one, it was like, oh, we are not doing anything the same. And yeah. um, my husband was like, well, we have to have a hospital birth yeah. because they saved her. And I said, well, they almost killed her. Yeah, so they saved her. So perspective. Said, <laughs> <laughs> no, they almost killed her. And he said, no, but in the end, they saved her. <laughs> yeah. I really hadn't made the full transition yet. I was yeah. still um, trapped in this grooming pattern that had been my whole life. Mm -hmm. That if I upset the man, which of course, you know, we never upset my alcoholic father. You don't upset the man. Uh, bad, bad, bad things happen. And that was my own baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, okay, I will go. And if I don't upset him, he won't leave, which he wasn't going to anyway. <laughs> and that was just still my own internal dialogue. Okay. And I would live. So nothing too awful would happen if I followed his fear. So his fear was the defining um, path. We had to modify his fear. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's so flexible that we also hired a woman who served as a midwife. She was this gorgeous hippie, <laughs> just a beautiful woman, um, complete flower child. And she became our partner and she called herself a midwife, which was great because she was really damning the man and defying the law. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, uh, I would never go back to an OB. So she suggested a family doctor who had hired her mm -hmm. for his wife's feedback. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, he was a very lovely man. And uh, I agreed to this hospital birth because that's what my husband needed. And went into labor and midwife came to stay with us um, and then assess the time when, and she drove us down in her flower van. <laughs> this great hippie van with flower decals all over it. So funny. <laughs> and great, straight out of the sixties yeah. and drove us down to the hospital. And I was seething. I was so full of rage it was amazing that I could actually give birth. I was raging, but that was probably how this, you know, labor needed it. But I was raging at myself. 
I could not believe I had capitulated and done this, mm. that I betrayed who I knew I was, that I was putting my baby in this danger for some dude's fear, and that mm. I was exposing her to this. I was so furious with myself. Mm -hmm. Just um, the first nurse that came in left because I was... I was so rude. <laughs> I was so angry. I was so obnoxious and livid. I just birthed her in absolute rage um, at myself. And it was such a simple birth. It was so simple. And she came out and um, brought her up to my chest and laid back with her. My husband leaned over and he said, the next one's at home. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, damn straight at his buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as it turned out, it was a really um, remarkable turning point in our relationship. Um, I gave him that, and that meant something to him. And I don't think he's ever said no to me since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's just such a lovely human. And, um, and I found myself. You know, I, I had this in absolute rage and it became much more difficult to allow the grooming to direct me and mm. to uh, capitulate on who I was after yeah. that. And yeah. so my next six births, um, five living and one mid-pregnancy loss were yeah. at home and uh, there wasn't anything that I would not do at home at that point. So would have twins breach whatever it wouldn't matter yeah <clears throat> and <clears throat> um tell me okay let's skip to the next birth at home how was that first birth at home like how different was it for you oh gosh it was fun mm. it was fun we had a good time a uh, group of ladies came over uh cooking up a storm my friend came over to mind the kids uh labor kept stalling i was like 43 weeks uh, carry them along as it turns out yeah <laughs> labor kept stalling and so it was in April and it was an early spring and my husband and I went out walking at uh, four in the morning just to see if things would move along and it was romantic it was romantic in the the quiet of the night and coming back to the ladies and uh, and then things got going and just as he came out he was posterior which is probably why things were um, stalling mm-hmm and as he was coming down the birth canal, he rotated anterior and came out. And it was the most remarkable sensation of my entire life. <laughs> and it came out and it's like, just put him back. I want to do it again. <laughs> shove him back up there and let this happen again. It was so great. <laughs> and uh, in the morning, he was, uh, he was about a, a couple of hours old. And my oldest daughter woke up and came into the room and saw me there holding the baby. And she said, oh, you had the baby. I'm going downstairs to tell daddy. <laughs> and she ran down to announce that mommy had had the baby. Oh, so gorgeous. it was lovely. It was lovely. Um, it was a challenge for um, our parents to hear that we were giving up the hospital system. Yeah. And finally, my mother said at one point, well, you know, I was born at home. Yeah. Well, of course you were. Everyone was when you were. When you were I being find born. that fascinating. I hear it so much that how it can be so fast generationally changed. You know, yes. my mum was born at home, and then obviously 
she went to a hospital because that's just what you did. It wasn't even an option. She talks about it today. Like, yeah, she could have, of course, had home birth, but it didn't even occur to her that that was a choice or an option. And yeah, it's just so, and also the other interesting thing is even the people that have birthed at home, like my sister-in-law's nonna birthed at home, her seven babies, eight babies. Um, but when she was going to do it, she was like, oh, Laura, you've got to go to hospital. And it's like, but you birthed at home. Like, it's just so quickly yeah. changed, hasn't it? It is so quick. My father-in-law was kind of horrified that we'd left the system. We were birthing at home. Yeah. And I just said, go talk to your mother. You were born at home. Yeah. <laughs> go talk to her. And she has some stern words for you. And he laughed yeah. and she did have some stern words for him. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And talk to me about um, the difference in bonding because that first baby being taken away from you must have been really challenging to form that bond. It was. Uh, I remember we might have been four months old. Uh, I was at a late league meeting. We were sitting in uh, one of the ladies' kitchen. And I was just talking about the challenge of bonding to this upset baby mm. and how traumatized I was. And she looked at me and she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. You two have the most wonderful relationship. She said, look at how you look at each other. And it was true. I had just needed somebody to observe it for me. Mm. And in fact, we were profoundly bonded. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, um, bonding through this haze of upset and yeah. missed moments, but it was a very deep bond. Mm, beautiful. That's nice. It That's was, a really yeah. uh, lovely observation that your friend had. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. Um, okay. And then there's a lot of, so you had, did you say five babies at home and one, no, yeah, one five pregnancy and loss. Yeah, talk about the mid-pregnancy -preg loss because this would be unusual for a lot of people. That you did you let it naturally occur at home? Yes. yes. Because yes. a lot of people, oh well, I have to go to the hospital and I have to have the DNC. DNC is that what it's called? Yeah, it would have um, been a, a D and E, a dilation and extraction. Okay. Which to me is disgusting for me personally. Yeah. It was um, for me. It was far too upsetting for me. Yeah. You can see that. Um, so I carried the pregnancy after the baby had passed for several weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think it was more upsetting for other people than it was for me. And mm. eventually um, I did agree to an OB consult. Mm -hmm. And um, then he, he said, you know, we can, we can put you under and do this. And I said, explain the process to me. And he said, Ooh, are you sure? And I said, of course, if you're going to go up inside my uterus, I need to know what you're going to do. Yeah. And so he explained it to me and, uh, and uh, it just, it, I wasn't there. And he, he was actually very kind and he said, you're not ready. Just go home. And that was uh, very kind of him to mm -hmm. just, it was not like it practices today. This was um, gosh, close to uh, very, very nearly 30 years ago. So mm -hmm. maybe, let me think now, um, 26 years ago. Yeah. So I have not heard of that since where, yeah. where I live. I haven't heard of that. Mm. Uh, so it was, a, it was a real moment of kindness rather than fear, hurry up, get things done. Yeah. Just go home. 
And so I did, I went home and just waited. And uh, when I did go into labor, it was, it was a labor. And um, my friend came over to mind the children mm -hmm. and um, went up to the bathroom and had another friend come up and stay with me and uh, pass my baby. And wow. then the woman who um, was serving as the midwife, she came afterwards to help out. How many weeks were you? Uh, past 20. 20, yeah, about wow. Around 20-ish. Wow. Um, and how was that process emotionally for you? I had just given birth. I yeah. had a baby. Yeah. My body knew I just had a baby. Uh, fortunately, I still had toddlers nursing. So mm -hmm. when the milk came back, that was not an issue because I had nursing toddlers. Mm -hmm. I'd had a baby, um, but the general approach of uh, our support circle was, okay, you've been through a hard thing. Let's get you back on the horse. Mm. Um, would you like to lead the ladies Bible study? I was like, oh, no, I really wouldn't. <laughs> would you like to do this? Mm. Um, that was another very definitive moment in my growth mm. of learning to say no. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that's really interesting to take the approach you took in that you naturally let it happen because I don't know. Um, tell me your thoughts on this, that, the process actually allowed you um, to process, you know, because you allowed it to happen rather than cutting it short. Like, like you said, like you went home, you knew the baby wasn't alive, but you carried that baby for a few more weeks. So then you could process or grieve. Or I don't know. I don't want to speak right. about your, your feelings. No, but... Absolutely. That was it. There was intense, heavy grieving Yeah. Uh, before anything was ready to let go. Yeah. So there was obviously the grief lasts as long as grief lasts. Mm -hmm. um, what my husband and I found most helpful was on the anniversary of her birth, we would go away and mm -hmm. we called it our go away day. <laughs> and uh, I did have another baby after that. And she came with us for many yeah. years. And every year on that day, we just said, okay, kids, you're on your own. And we left yeah. and we'd leave nice. in the morning and we would come back in the evening sometime when that was our go away day. And we did that for 15 years. Wow. And we needed it. We needed 15 years because grief yeah. is what it is. And on the 16th year, we looked at each other and just, do you need to go? And we didn't, we didn't, yeah. we were okay. Wow. But this year because of uh, social isolation and being away from our children this year, it hit us again. Mm. But, so just the nature of grief it is what it is yeah so yeah. that's that's where um i feel very fortunate that the her birth was not rushed yeah her processing processing of the loss was not rushed and the grief was not rushed yeah so nice. it feels very very complete and very holistic and um whatever needed to happen through the grief in my own growth mm -hmm. and spiritual journey was allowed to happen yeah that's that's really um yeah, nice way to put it. Um, how so? This was your second last baby, did you say? Mm -hmm. How was um, the next pregnancy after that? Because you obviously had that experience of having a baby born not alive. Did you um, have fears for the next yeah. one? Well, I had other losses as well. With my okay. fifth, he he started out as a twin, okay. and I knew it. Um, yeah. But only he was born and. Um, a couple of early, early losses and then 
My yeah. sixth baby, he began as a twin as well. Okay. And I passed his twin and he, and I thought I'd miscarried altogether, but he stayed and mm -hmm. I was quite thrilled. And yeah. then mid-pregnancy loss and then my, my last one. Yeah. Um, I was depleted. I was really depleted. Um, it, doing life differently means often doing life without support. Mm. We had great friends, but uh, we had moved and we had lost that amazing community where we went to each other's births. So mm. it was, um, so yes, when you do life differently, it's often doing life alone. Um, mm. Homeschooling was a lot of work, loved yeah. it, wouldn't have changed a thing about it, but mm -hmm. um, physically I was depleted. Yeah. Um, my, our parents were just appalled that we kept having children. I'm appalled. <laughs> so I was pregnant with the last. I refused to tell anybody. And uh, I'm going to church and you can't hide a pregnancy when you've had given birth eight, you know, seven times yes, previously. Yes. There's no hiding it. <laughs> yes. But I didn't want to talk about it. So these very kind people didn't ask me and I wasn't going to talk about it. I just didn't want to talk about it with anybody. Yes, I was pregnant and I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to cherish my baby. I wanted to cherish the fact that we were having another. We were so happy about it. So mm -hmm. happy. And we were so fed up with other people's imposing their view on us. And all we can think is we don't use the medical system. So your tax money isn't paying for that. We don't use the educational system. Your tax money isn't paying for that. We're not asking you to babysit. We don't ask you to financially support us. We don't ask you to do a dang thing for us, except, you know, kind of be nice to the kids. Yep. So um, I was just so over it. I didn't want to hear it anymore. Mm. So I guess when I was six months pregnant, I was finally like, all right. Yes. Obviously I look like I'm eight months pregnant. <laughs> I've had a lot of babies. Yes. Yeah. There's no hiding it. Yeah. And uh, people kind of understood that after the loss, mm. I just didn't want to talk about it. So they're very, very kind. And mm -hmm. even after she was born, I did not phone anyone in my family to tell them until she was about a week old. Oh, wow. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't yeah. want to hear the unfortunate things or, you know. Yeah, you just needed yeah. that time together, that special time. Yeah, yeah. And as a family, we loved it. Um, we love our large family. Um, yeah. How many, love, how I many wanted, years between each of them? How close are they together? Uh, they tended to come pretty regularly every 21 months, every two years. Oh, wow. So pretty close. Yeah. 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 That's why my body was pretty depleted. Yeah, absolutely. Um. What I want to chat to you a little bit now, so now you're working, you're attending births, but I want to talk about this trauma-informed care. Talk to me a little bit about that and what that entails and how we uh, can be better um, or how we can use trauma-informed care in, when we, we're caring for pregnant women. Uh, trauma-informed care is a skill set. Yeah. Uh, it's something that just needs to be learned. Yeah. I, I tend to liken it to CPR. You know, mm -hmm. it's a life-saving skill set mm -hmm. that when any practitioner is working in any capacity, they should have that skill set. Uh, CPR is required of somebody who works in a gym and, <laughs> or 
you know, any, any place where something might happen. And it's just one of those uh, wise skill sets. So trauma-informed care is, in my opinion, as necessary and as life-saving as uh, CPR. Mm-hmm. So in the developed world, in some countries, the leading cause of postpartum death in the first world is suicide. Mm-hmm. And in some countries, it's a leading cause. So yeah. it's up there among the first one, two or three leading causes of postpartum death. Yes. It's highly correlated to trauma. Yes. Um, yes, suicidal ideation can be part of depression and it can be part of postpartum anxiety. It is largely part of postpartum PTSD. Yes. So how women are treated in their births, the most significant factor that contributes to a traumatic experience and to postpartum PTSD is the relationship, the interpersonal relationship between the care providers and the birthing mother. Yes. So when there's a breakdown in that relationship, that is what can cause a traumatic experience. Mm. So not all women have a traumatic experience and that is depends on a level of resiliency. So trauma is the result of um, a series of events or an event that overwhelms the individual's resilience resources. Now, some people have greater resilience resources because they had a loving upbringing, they've got great nutrition, their vitamin D levels are high, they've got a support circle. Others yeah. are quite low. Mm-hmm. Um, they might be victims of childhood um, domestic violence, high adverse childhood experiences. They might have been sex trafficked. They might have uh, tremendous nutritional deficits, which impacts the resilience of the brain. Yeah. And so the resilience level is lower. So an individual who goes into a a birth situation and they have a interpersonal relationship with a care provider that is awful, they're mistreated, um, probably abused. Uh, Someone with high resiliency will come out of that and think, asshole. (laughs) <laughs> they're yeah. just angry. That's Someone me. With- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone with less adaptive strategies because of life experiences will have an actual brain injury. Trauma yeah. physically and structurally changes parts of the brain in the limbic system and mm-hmm. is akin to a brain injury. And they yeah. will emerge with a brain injury. And that's where many of the symptoms of PTSD come from. Mm. And that's also why it doesn't respond to treatment in the same way depression or anxiety does. Mm. So it's teaching anybody who interacts with uh, birthing clients how to engage in trauma-informed practices Mm -hmm. so that it prevents the potential traumatizing of the individual. So these are interpersonal skills. Yep. Okay, so... I mean, obviously, you're not going to teach us everything in just this short conversation, but what's the basic principles of it? Uh, the, to begin, uh, it's understanding that trauma exists in many people and what these signs and the symptoms are. There is never a reason to ask a client, oh, have you been sexually abused? Oh, when was the last time you were raped? There is never a reason to do that. Mm-hmm to recognize the expressions and the symptoms that tell you that this individual probably, not always, probably has pre-existing trauma. Yeah. That might be 
certain health conditions because people who have pre-existing trauma are more likely to have uh, pre-existing health conditions prior to entering into their birth experience. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, according to a 2019 study called Listening to Mothers, women who have pre-existing health conditions are more likely to be mistreated than those who are healthy. Yes, absolutely. Disagree or have a difference of opinion with their care provider, they are 80% of them are likely to be mistreated in birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the challenging the opinion of the care provider can be dangerous. Mm. Can expose them to mistreatment and at times abuse. So teaching uh, care providers what trauma looks like. What does it mean when your client comes in with a 14 page birth plan and six supporters? Mm. The likelihood is their 14 page birth plan is a trauma narrative. Yeah. So instead of putting it on the shelf and joking about how fast the individual is going to end up in the in the uh, surgical ward, is mm. to ins oh sorry about that bang thing. I thought <laughs> I turned it off. <laughs> um, it's instead to understand we're probably looking at a trauma narrative and how to understand that and to treat the client in a way that isn't going to re-traumatize them. Mm -hmm. Some of that is um, listening skills. Mm. A I think it was a. 2019 study again fairly recent mm -hmm. that said showed that when only one third of practitioners actually asked the client why they were there or what was on their mind mm -hmm. and they in when they did ask and the client started to explain on average they interrupted them within 11 seconds wow so active listening is not a common skill Yes. And um, also I, even the, um, you know, uh, ability to have that time. I, I remember my midwife sitting outside an obstetrician's office and she was timing the average time that they actually get with their obstetrician. And I think, I can't remember, but it was like four minutes or something like that. It's like, how can you even have a conversation in that time? Like, how can we even provide this care that women need when you've got four minutes? I mean... <laughs> Abs yes, exactly. And some of that is um, time is money. Exactly. The, by the time uh, an obstetrician or any specialist yeah. completes all of the years of training and residency and yeah. fellowship, um, they've got massive debts. Yes. Massive. And time is money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you were saying, <laughs> which I just did to you, but um, not they're interrupting 11 seconds after they start speaking, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in the literature, when women describe what it was that contributed to a traumatic birth, not being heard was one of them. Um, simple things like not having their, um, any of their wishes acknowledged. It was just no, 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 mm. <laughs> with no reason. The, a common theme is that the care provider's agenda took priority over any of the needs of the mother yes. or the care provider's preferences. Yes. Uh, informed consent is yes. uh, a very common theme throughout all of obstetrics and particularly when trauma is involved. So things are done to the client, not with her or for her, but are done to her. Mm. And even when she says, no, stop, it continues anyway. Um, yeah. For many, 
their births are triggers for reenacting previous rape. Yeah. So what the clinician looks like to them is a perfectly ordinary birth. Mother comes in, um, labor slowed down, augmentation with rupture of membranes, a little bit of Pitocin, uh, push the baby out, clamp the cord, drive the baby off, there you go, bing, bang, boom, great up, car, congratulations. For the client, that might have been a complete reenactment of being raped. Mm. Pinned down on her back, legs opened up, people in the room not able to say no, things done to her, penetrating mm -hmm. her, the smells, the, the language used, you know, just lie still, it'll be over soon enough. Mm. So even the language uh, is can be very triggering. Yeah, absolutely. Oh wow, it's such a big um, topic, isn't it? It sure is. Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's just all too common. Um, we're just, you know, the real pandemic is birth trauma. Let's be honest. Yeah, it's birth fright, and even in the last. 10 years, the level of birth fright um, is, has escalated. The years when I had a fairly steady clientele, uh, these are women who choose to birth at home. They mm -hmm. don't want to birth without a companion and mm -hmm. they're not interested in a doctor, midwife or nurse to be with them. So they asked me to companion with them and I would have some pretty busy years, mm -hmm. but then the uh, birth fright escalated. Mm. And, and it became so overwhelmingly frightening for, for many women to say, I don't want to go and get the same thing my friends got. I don't want to have the same horror stories. I don't want one third of likelihood will be cut open. One third likelihood it's going to be traumatic. Mm. I don't want what my friends had, but it's too frightening to not do it. Yeah. So the alternative has, has become quite frightening, but now after several months of uh, COVID measures, um, I'm getting a lot of calls now. Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> I always like to have hope and maybe you can call it naivety. Um, but I just, I do see a great change in the birth world, just slowly, even in my own little community, I'm just really excited about how it is changing. And I think people are waking up. Um, because ultimately who wants trauma in their birth, you know, <laughs> no one. And it's just about trying to, um, yeah, make sure that these women have the information, informed consent, you know, all this kind of stuff, because um, so often the, the obstetricians, the midwives are the gatekeepers of this information, but they're not really. <laughs> we do have the ability now with the internet to have so much information out there. Um, like listening to this podcast, for example, because um, <laughs> like I remember I going down to the university library because yeah. that's where all the medical books were. Yes, and yes, that was open to the public, and uh, I spent, oh gosh, weekends pouring through medical journals. It was wow. great. And so different. Uh, it is now. Gosh, click of a button. Let's <laughs> do a that's, quick search. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, you also see the pushback uh, in the industry in telling mothers to avoid Dr. Google. Yes. Which is pretty offensive. Because yes. 
you know, it's a pretty simple place to find original research and publications and practice guidelines and exactly the, the doctors can find. So telling them to avoid it is, um, it's infantilizing, but yes. we see that in maternity care where month after month and week after week, it's that same grooming process that I went through as a child and through my childbirth education, mm. this grooming process to not trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Girl, don't upset the man. Don't make him angry. But the man in this case is actually just the system. The system yes. The <clears throat> hospital-based, facility-based birth. Don't upset. Don't make the system angry. Exactly. So it's that grooming and... Uh, and it's don't the same Dr. Google you're 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 just a little girl you don't yeah you don't have any kind of critical thinking skills you're just going to mm. read something and believe it a hundred percent um and I think it's what I was going to say is um it's the same as the schooling system uh there's just a big indoctrination ground of you know this is what the government believes and this is what you're we're teaching you to believe and believe it or else <laughs> Be a good little yeah. worker bee. <laughs> I think we're seeing the results of that throughout uh, the pandemic is the absence of critical thinking. Yes, so much yeah. so. Oh my God, I've yeah. started to see in my friendship groups who is the critical thinkers and who isn't. <laughs> and the critical thinkers are often vilified. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're all conspiracy theorists, apparently. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I was reading a homeschooling book last night and it was just saying, yeah, about homeschooling and teaching critical thinking. And I think it does allow for that. I mean, we don't have too much longer, but let's touch on homeschooling a little bit. Um, how, uh, what do you see as the benefits of homeschooling? Cause you've obviously gone through it right from the start into the finish, like with growing adults, what, what do you see with the benefits for your family? Um, critical thinking. Yeah. That's... Uh, yep. They're, they're able to look at things through a different lens because yeah. they were raised outside of a system. Mm -hmm. And of course they were always told, Oh, you don't have to try hard cause mommy's going to let you pass. I'm like, well, that's not how it works. Mommy doesn't yeah. let you pass. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a, our homeschooling setting, um, I did, I did teach them test taking yeah. because, um, most of them went on to university and it was a useful school for that yeah. skill for that yeah. uh, environment. So I did teach it to them. And if they didn't do well on a test, all that meant was, oh, well, we didn't master the information. Let's go back yeah. and let's approach it from a new way. So if the information didn't gel the first time, well, let's try a new approach. Mm. So there was always a new way of trying something to make mm. it gel rather than we're doing the one thing. And of course, I'm not saying school teachers don't, um, don't try to tailor how they present information. Of course they do. They care mm -hmm. very much about it. Of course yes. they do. But there are certainly uh, certain standards that have or markers that have to be met according to the curriculum. And also important. they don't have the time. They don't, of you know, they not. might no. want to do it different for that kid and that kid, but when you've got 30 kids, it's impossible. You can't. Of course it is. Yes. They certainly have limitations and uh, I have great respect for school teachers because it's not an easy job. Uh, yes. Homes, the home environment is, is a very different environment yeah. where we talked about 
everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just, okay, well, now you have to toe the line on mommy's view. That's got nothing to do with it. It's yes. Learning from them. What did you read? Tell me about it. Let's talk some more. Well, what is, yeah. what would happen if we introduce this perspective into it? Mm-hmm. So uh, one son um, is a social worker mm-hmm. and some of his clientele, of course, they're very uh, cautious about interacting with people that are part of a government regulated system. Mm-hmm. And so um, what he's found to his advantage is because he came to, you know, regulated systems very late in life, like yes. university, um, they trust him. Yeah. They trust him because his go-to is not, okay, well, it's always been done this way. So this is the way we do it. He yeah. Very late in life. So it's turned out to be a great advantage in his career, which is really nice. Yeah. I think what's, um, I don't know if you've read a book called Educated. It's by a lady called Tara Westover. Maybe I'm making that up. But anyway, it's actually a book that's anti-homeschooling, but it's so ironic really in that she can't. So basically the story is that uh, it's a biography of her that she grew up uh, maybe Mormon, I'm not sure. Um, but regardless, the upbringing was in a way quite, there was some abuse there, which is not great. That's not great. I'm not talking about that. But with the homeschooling, her mum, she kind of criticizes her mother for not teaching her uh, thoroughly. And now she's gone on to study at, I, I believe, Oxford and maybe Harvard, I can't remember. But I, I just thought it was such a perspective shift that she couldn't see that it was actually the homeschooling that allowed her. Yes, her mum didn't teach her, um, you know, really hard algebra because her mum didn't know that. But her mum taught her the skills to be able to go and get that for herself. Um, and it's, she's not just an anomaly in her family. You know, I think two of her brothers have PhDs, you know, like yes. it's not about the content necessarily that is taught. It is about the skills that is taught from the um, parents to be able to go out and get and find and research for yourself is which what she did. And did it take her a few attempts to get into university? Yes, because she wasn't there at the start. It's not about, you know. I mean, I just wonder if she'd gone to the local school, would she be where she was today? Isn't that interesting? Uh, of my children um, that chose to go to university, five did. Yeah. Uh, they all went, they all entered on scholarships. Yeah. So they were very well prepared to yes. enter into that system. Um, for them, it was just like, okay, well, what do you want? You know, what do you, what are you looking for from me? Exactly. Let me get to know you, what it is you want from me. And yeah. Um, and then to explore it that way, you know, certainly some teachers are looking for um, a student's assessment of what they want. It's like, okay, that's what you want from me. You know, yeah. I remember, I remember uh, my youngest, she went to school much earlier than the others and she was so frustrated with the content and so not the content, but what was expected of her and so frustrated yeah. with the assignment. And I said, well, you have a choice. Everybody's got a choice. It's up to you. Do you yeah. want the mark or do you want to, or do you want to explore this and do what it is you want to do and mm-hmm. really dig down into this area because it's meaningful to you? Or do you want the mark? Which one do you want? Yeah. Either's fine. Either's yes. fine. You have yes. my support either way. You might fail uh, mark-wise 
if yeah. you pursue this in the way that your intellect and your interest is leading you, yes. and that's okay. You know, you got my yes. support. And so she sat with it and she said, I'm going to go for the mark. It's all yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what I'm dabbling with right now. I'm very tentatively considering a PhD in free birth. And it's like, will the system drive me insane so much that I can't deal with it? Or do I want the PhD more? Because I do so much research into this anyway. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm dabbling with. We'll, we'll see where that fits with me. <laughs> I'll come back to you next year. <laughs> I'll be here looking forward to it. Yeah. But um, look, we better wrap up because we're hitting the hour mark. It has been so wonderful chatting to you, Billy. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they connect with you? I have two websites. One is Billy Harrigan Consulting and Education. So just Google my name and I'll come up. Mm -hmm. And the other is Birth Trauma Ontario. Beautiful. And you're on Instagram as well. I'm yeah. on Instagram, on Facebook, yeah, I'm around. What's your name on um, Instagram? Instagram is uh, Billy Harrigan. Yep. And Birth Trauma Ontario. Beautiful. Oh, yeah, I love all your posts. This is how I found you, Billy. I was just like, ah, oh, she re resonates with me. I love her work. I'm going to contact her. And I did. And here you are. And yeah, it's been wonderful I'm chatting. So glad you did. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Billy. <laughs> Thank you. you very much for uh, sharing this time and allowing me to just, you know, share this journey with you. It's been wonderful. Thank yeah, you. It, it's been wonderful. And I, I mean, I have so much more I want to ask you. So maybe we'll have to get you back on another time. <laughs> Terrific. I would love it. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Renegade Mama podcast. That's all for today. But if you would like to connect with me, I am on Facebook as the Renegade Mama podcast or on Insta as the underscore Renegade underscore Mama. You can also visit me on my new website, therenegademama.co. And there you'll be able to find out more information about the show, our latest birthing classes and much more. The Renegade Mama is all about following your intuition, not the institution. We are sovereign. We are free. If you like the Renegade Mama podcast, then leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or our Facebook page. The Renegade Mama is released weekly on both Apple iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts.